Well, along with Pastor Mike, I want to welcome you to worship uh, this morning as we continue our sermon series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, we are seeing the faithfulness of God in fulfilling uh, his promises to his people. Uh, for people returning from exile, God will fulfill his promises uh, to build the kingdom ultimately through Jesus Christ. And yes, there is much to encourage to spur us on to love and good deeds today. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to please open your Bible or one of the pew Bibles to Ezra chapter 4. It's on page 391 of your pew Bibles, not 656, but 391. Now from Ezra chapter 4, we are considering steadfast faith in the face of opposition. As the title suggests, God calls us to resolute trust in the Lord, to live a life of joy and fruitful labor for Him, uh, and He does not want us to be surprised at worldly, worldly opposition to our efforts. So I think that's the beauty of the chapter before us. Since I don't want us to be lost at sea as we read our text, let me outline the historic framework of Ezra chapter 4. First of all, verses 1 to 5 continue with the story that we saw in chapter 3 last week, that of rebuilding the temple and reestablishing worship. And yet here in chapter 4 is where the opposition begins. At this point, the events are taking place in the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, right at the beginning of his reign and into the beginning of the reign of Darius. Verses 1 to 5 report this opposition in the time of Cyrus. Then in verses 6 to 23, we have a thematic bracket or sidebar revealing opposition to Judah down through the years. Um, It's written by the author here some 100 years after this event and just recounting all the opposition that had occurred over the years to Judah. And then in verse 24, we are jolted back to the early reign of Darius. Verse 24 picks up where verse 5 has left us. So if we were to read in chronological order, we would read verses 1 to 5, then verse 24, then verses 6 to 23. So for the reading of Holy Scripture this morning, I'll read Ezra 4, 1 through 5, and this, and then verse 24. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, uh, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Then to verse 24, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, give us grace each moment to draw our life from you. May we walk in your steps and enjoy our fellowship with you. As we now give attention to your word, open the eyes of our hearts to behold the wonders of your love. 
Holy Spirit, pour light upon these words which you have caused to be inspired and write them upon our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, the major theme of Ezra chapter 4 is this. Every period of significant growth and maturity of Christ's kingdom and for His church is most often preceded by opposition. Even while growth and outreach occurs, opposition often accompanies, accompanies it. If we would be used of the Lord, if we would grow in spiritual maturity, and if we would see more people brought into God's kingdom and the church, then we should not be surprised by opposition from our enemy and also the world. Now, from one perspective, affliction and opposition is a normal lot for Christians. Even Jesus tells us that in this world you will have affliction, tribulation. So we need not be surprised by what Ezra 4 is telling us. But from a second perspective, opposition will come. So for God's people, it's best for us to be prepared to remain faithful to Christ in all things. That's the lesson that shouts from our verses. The writer of Ezra leaves the tight chronology evident in the first three chapters and takes us on this thematic journey in chapter 4. He returns to a chronological telling of the returning exiles and the rebuilding of the temple, ultimately the wall of Jerusalem in verse 24 of this chapter. But in these verses, he gives us a quick look into the future. Now, why would he do this? Well, in essence, he wants us to know that in following the Lord's will, it means that it will not always be an easy walk in the park. We will face opposition from the enemy at multiple levels. So, dear family of God, don't be surprised and don't be trapped in the affections for this world. Don't lose sight of the eternity that is ahead that we will enjoy with him forevermore. And yet what happened to Israel in earlier generations, and it still happens to us today, we are sometimes trapped in mind and affections for this world. We lose sight of the eternity that we will enjoy with our Savior. That's why some Christians seem to whine and complain and murmur when opposition or affliction comes and we think life is to be easy. And yet how can life be easy When sin abounds about us. How can life be bliss when men love darkness rather than the light? How can life be pure when men hate the Creator and seek to throw off His sovereign rule? Why does the jumper writer jump decades ahead in this bracket? Well, in a sense, this sidebar, sidebar helps us understand that opposition to you and to me is consistent. There is nothing new under the sun. While we engage in fruitful kingdom work for the good and love of our neighbor, know that we will have difficulties from time to time. Opposition to our efforts is a biblical reality. So with this background in mind, let's work through the text. And as followers of Christ and building our trust in him, the first point here is that we learn that opposition is real. You know, we sometimes suffer with disillusionment in modern America. We resist the clear biblical teaching that Christians suffer for their Christian faith and encounter difficulties and trials as believers. Yet opposition to kingdom efforts is evident throughout Scripture. Ezra and Nehemiah make this clear. 
And from this chapter through the end of Nehemiah, a stretch of some 80 years, opposition, adversity and trials accompany the people of God as they move forward to be faithful to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls. Did this mean that God was not working among them? Well, no. On the contrary, it indicates one of the means that the Lord uses to strengthen his people and demonstrate his grace in our lives is how we respond to opposition. As Paul told the young churches in Asia Minor Minor, at the end of his first missionary journey, we labor. This is Acts 14, verse 22, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Has that changed? Well, though we have been spared many things in our nation, we dare not get comfortable and presumptuous. Our afflictions will come. If we think that comfort is our right, the testing of our faith and the building of our confidence and the faithfulness of our God through the gospel may elude us. Rather, we are constantly reminded that this world is not our home, even as we labor for him with glory. But but let's look at these first few verses, though, more specifically. Who were the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, the enemies of the returning exiles? Well, here the adversaries were those who had been settled in the land of Palestine by an Assyrian king. The typical pattern of conquering kings was to remove the people of the conquered land to another part of the kingdom. The kings wanted to cut ties with the inheritance of those who had lived there. They wanted to change their culture into a new culture to reorient loyalties toward the new kingdom. Now, this particular group of adversaries would have originally settled in Samaria with a variety of cultural and religious backgrounds. They brought their idolatry with them in their practices associated with their religion when they settled in Palestine. Now, when Zerubbabel and Joshua rejected their overtures for attendance on rebuilding the temple, it had nothing to do with racism or anti-foreign sentiments. They knew instead that these men were enemies to them because they were enemies of their God. What were the issues at hand? Second Kings exposes some of this. These enemies rejected the exclusive worship of the Lord alone. They rejected any need for atonement before God so they would have mocked the Jewish people on the Day of Atonement and the sacrifices as being made for the atonement of sin. Just think of what it would mean today if people would mock the blood of Jesus Christ in our need for the forgiveness of our sin. And so do we learn something from this history, especially in a day when it is politically and socially incorrect to be single minded in our devotion to Christ. So we see this response to what seems to be a good offer of help. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God that we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, when I first read this, I did ask myself, were they being unkind and uncharitable at such a generous offer being made to them? Well, I soon realized not really. They knew what got them into trouble and thus 
into exile in the first place. They didn't want to repeat it by watering down their worship and devotion to the Lord by allying with these syncretists. So now the question comes, how far do we go in separating from others? And I know this is very touchy. Some have taken this too far and have become isolationists, trying to separate from everyone in the world. The issue, though, before the returning exiles was clear. It was not nationality. It wasn't ethnic background or cultural distinctions that caused the separation. It was assaults on their belief and practice in worshiping and serving their sovereign and merciful Lord. And likewise, we know not to water down the gospel and destroy the foundation upon which our faith and life rest. Indeed, as we remain anchored in the truth, our gospel witness is secure and God will bless our efforts of outreach and love. And then you see in verses 4 to 5, the enemies hired counselors. I think we would better call them lobbyists today against them to frustrate their favor with the king all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Those are decades of opposition by the same people. And he noted in our verses, what are the effects of all this opposition? Well, here it is. It's threefold. First, there is discouragement. The word conveys the relaxing of the hands, the weakening of confidence. Discouragement will take the wind out of our sails. It saps the energy from our lives and deflates our passion and heart that we have for gospel work. And you notice here, secondly, that there's fear because their adversaries made them afraid to build. You know, the world does not bother us if we make little of our Lord and little of the gospel. But to love Christ and his gospel seems to trigger worldly threats, slander, accusations of bias and prejudice against God's people. And sometimes that wears us down and there is fear. And with all this multiplied opposition of the counselors, the lobbyists and the relentless political campaign against the exiles, The work, thirdly, simply stopped. The people lost heart for continuing on with the work of God. So as the followers of Christ and building our trust in Him, we learn that opposition is real. I don't think any of us would deny that. But secondly, we learn that opposition is ongoing. It's going to be unending. That's the point of the sidebar in verses 6 to 23. It came in the form of three letters of opposition over time. We see this in this section as an ongoing description of conflict and intimidation and enmity. And I had to read this section of these verses many, many times before my head started to become clear. And I don't want you to be lost at sea, so let me give you a summary. Three accusations come in the form of letters here to the Persian kings. Verse 6 contains an accusation against Judah in the reign of Xerxes. Verse 7 deals with a second accusation later than that of verse 6 during the reign of Artaxerxes. Then in verse 8, there's a third accusation also under Artaxerxes, of which we have a copy preserved in Ezra 4. This letter was had a lot of flattery and innuendo and apparent concern for Persian interest in taxes and security. There's all sorts of accusations that are flying off to the Persian court here in, in Ezra 4. But here is the key question. Do the letters tell 
the truth. And I want to tell you, they do not. They distort, verse 12, they say of God's people that they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They did not give Jerusalem an accurate picture. Surprise! They loosely hold to the truth in verse 13. They say, now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toil, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Well, this is the nature of the world, family of God. Truth means nothing. The world set against God wants to get its way. This is at the very core of depravity because the world will ultimately stop at nothing to achieve its lust. The Jews were insignificant in number, weak in political strength, poor in resources, and yet the charge was made that they would not be loyal to the king, and there's nothing here that suggests that in their practice. And then finally, I'll just highlight that they go on with exaggeration. Verse 16, they say, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river, which is the Euphrates River. What a stretch. They are saying that this tiny area of Jerusalem uh, would deny the king of the larger region of Syria and Palestine. But due to this timing, you understand that the Persian king did feel some threat because of what was happening in Egypt. But he thought, okay, this little group of people in Jerusalem, they're going to threaten me. So therefore, I will stop their efforts. But there's no truth in the accusations against them. We must realize that enemies of the Lord God and enemies of the gospel are not interested in the truth. They only want to stop forward movement of the faith. They will justify lies in order to accomplish their end game. And that perhaps is what all of us once were before the Lord answered and opened the eyes of our heart with the gospel. Applying this history, though, to our present reality It seems to me that we live in a very similar day. This has everything to do with us as well. For we live in a day when truth has been sacrificed on the altar of expediency, where belief in absolutes is out of fashion. We live in an age of political correctness and religious correctness. You speak about marriage and you may be accused of being insensitive to sexual preference. Others may call you a fundamentalist if you believe the Bible. If you say Jesus is the only way, that there is no other, no other way or name under heaven and earth that we must be saved, the world will say most likely that we are intolerant, we're narrow-minded, we are guilty of arrogant belligerency because the world in which we live is intolerant to us. You see, pluralism is not new, brothers and sisters. So don't be surprised by it. Jesus would say in the face of the pluralist faith in his own day, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And my friends, what Ezra and what the people of God in this particular time are facing is precisely what you and I are facing every day. So we need to be faithful in the face of opposition to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So now we come to the third point. So how do God's people respond to such times of of opposition? Well, as followers of Christ and building our trust in Him, we learn that opposition is real. We learn that opposition is ongoing. And we learn that opposition 
is a precious jewel. Again, the opposition. The enemies of God, these adversaries, they have this two-pronged attack. First, they engage in discouragement. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Second, though, they hire counselors. They bribe counselors or lobbyists in the courts of Persia to erode the favor of the king towards God's people. And then we see in this last verse here that the work of rebuilding the temple comes to a grinding halt. It's perhaps shocking on one level how quickly the opposition worked, how quickly the enthusiasm and the drive and the zeal and the vision just seemed to evaporate. Yet in the face of opposition, in the face of difficulty, in the face of the threat of violence, the work stopped. Yet on another level, I think this chapter begs us to grow in steadfast faith in the face of opposition. So I want to ask you a very personal question. Are you discouraged? Are you discouraged about the church in the 21st century? Are you discouraged by the work of the kingdom of God? In the face of post-modernity, in the face of the deconstruction of biblical faith all around us, in this time in which there is scorn for biblical truth, for godly standards, protective morality in our society, are you discouraged? Well, let me suggest three things as a three-pronged strategy for opposing discouragement and dealing with opposition so that we indeed will prove ourselves to be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. First, be be realistic. My family, be realistic. There will always be opposition. There will always be difficulty. There will always be Satan's men who, who do his bidding in every age, in times past, in the present, and in their future. When Jesus was crucified there with a dozen believers, 20 perhaps, let's be generous, a hundred in Jerusalem, be realistic. He said that he would build his church and he would build it in enemy-occupied territory. There will always be opposition. It's nothing new. So let's be ready. Let God be faithful in our midst. Second, there is something missing here, and I read it many times. What's missing from the story? Prayer. There is no prayer here. There is no mention of it. What do the people of God do when they're discouraged, when they face discouragement? Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? You should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Some of the most edifying verses for me for many decades, very familiar, Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness... Be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, will, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, in the 21st century, we need to make use of collective prayer 
and individual prayer consistently. Sometimes we lose sight of the value of collective corporate prayer and coming before the throne of grace and making our wants and needs and petitions known to Almighty God. Learn here, though, the mighty, powerful weapon of prayer. It is availed to us. Thirdly, keep your eyes on Jesus and be faithful. Hebrews 1, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, before the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. So that you will not grow weary and lose hearts. We fix our eyes on Jesus. He endured the cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sin. He rose from the grave victorious over sin and death for our salvation. And Christ has made us more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Nothing, nothing will ever be able to separate us from His love. So turn from our sin and apathy and trust Christ for salvation. Your heart focused on Jesus Christ, the rock of your salvation, will allow Him to strengthen your faith. There is grace. Why, brothers and sisters? Because He blesses you and me that you might exercise faith. Faith in God. Faith in His Word. Faith in His promises. Faith in His covenant. Faith in the victory of His Son. Faith in the empty tomb. Faith in Jesus who sits at God's hand and who ever lives to make intercession for us. And this heart focus will strengthen our resolve to labor for His glory. So when we sing in this closing hymn, A mighty fortress is our God, please sing with confidence. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not at Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Oh, please. May we learn that comp- this confidence this morning. As we engage personal trials in the providence of God, may we see that God has called us to be pilgrims, to be at war, to fight the good fight of faith, trusting Him, believing Him with all of our hearts. May we know that He will bless our kingdom efforts to expand the kingdom through the sharing of the gospel and loving our neighbor. And by His grace and power, may Christ bless us with steadfast faith in the face of opposition to the glory of His name. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this Word. Something that happened so long ago to Your people and yet it seems to speak of things that are just around the corner for us. And we pray that you would bless us with steadfast faith in the face of opposition. May we resist the temptation of pluralism 
that would weaken our resolve to worship and to serve you for the good of your people and for the glory of your kingdom. May we stand firm, trusting in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.